but scientific evidence remains inconclusive as to whether human activities affect the global climate. No, that's actually not true, Mr. Raymond. No place I would rather be. From Pacifica Radio's KPFK in Los Angeles, this is your broadcast. As heard on 90.7 FM in LA, 91.7 FM KYAQ on the beautiful Oregon Central Coast, 93 FM WLRI in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 88.5 KAKU, the voice of Maui. Aloha, Maui. And of course, coast to coast and around the globe on kpfk.org. As always on iTunes. And of course, streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, on Netroots Radio, on Indie Media Weekly, on FYI Nation, on Radio or Not, on Radio Free Brooklyn, and on Radio Sputnik, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today. Delighted uh, you will be with us for another thrilling, action-packed adventure. Please buckle up and listen responsibly. Uh, we've got uh, a big sh- that that clip uh, that you heard right at the opening there. That was uh, Lee Raymond. He's the uh, Exxon Mobil CEO, or at least he was from 1999 to 2005 he's the one who says that the uh, science is inconclusive uh what was he saying there does he do it that was 1996 he was making that uh, statement what was he saying there uh, he was basically saying that the scientific evidence on climate change is inconclusive and he acknowledged that yes there is uh, rising carbon dioxide levels but we don't know if this is going to be a problem who knows it's uncertain We're not and it's sure. god forbid we should think about doing anything drastic it's until unclear. we know for sure that's right now that was he was uh, the ceo of exxon as they say from 99 to 2005 that was a speech that he gave when he was a senior exxon executive back in 1996 uh, he was lying Uh, he knew better because his own scientists at the time had already known better uh, by almost 20 years by the time that he was out there misleading about uh, climate change and global emissions from the burning of his uh, his product over at Exxon we're going to be speaking momentarily with Sharon Eubanks she was the lead prosecutor in the U.S. government's big uh, RICO conspiracy case against uh, against big tobacco for uh, their uh, conspiracy to mislead the public about the dangers of cigarette smoking. So we might now be on the verge of a similar case against big oil and uh, and their conspiracy to mislead the public about the dangers of climate change. Thanks to the burning of fossil fuels, we've been musing about this uh, possibility on this program now for for several months and trying to figure out exactly what the parallels might be between that big tobacco case and the big oil case. Um, 
And also, you know, exactly what is a RICO case anyway? So we're going to talk about all of that and more with the person who led the prosecution for the U.S. government against big tobacco. Very excited about that. Uh, and uh, Desi Doyen, of course, you'll be joining us a little bit later as well with the Green News Report. Hi, Desi. I forgot to say hi. Hi. I just started talking to you as if you were always there, which, of course... You are. But it's nice to be introduced anyway. Uh, and uh, Desi Doyen will be uh, with us uh, with the Green News Report a little bit later covering the uh, this week's big Republican debate on the Fox Business Channel and the uh, and the Democratic Forum in South Carolina late last week. Uh, we, we, we covered it yesterday. We talked about the, uh, the big Republican debate this week, but we didn't get into the green issues, the energy issues. Uh, we had uh, Digby and Dayan, our friends, uh, David Dayan and Heather Digby-Parton, to talk about the debate overall. But we, we as usual, we, we kept the energy stuff uh, and the climate change stuff and the green stuff for you. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Very quickly, a couple of polls of note. No, not about the presidential race, but about the way that Americans feel about guns versus terrorism. And by a huge margin, according to this uh, uh, new poll from McClatchy and Marist, Americans fear gun violence over terrorism. That's good because... Gun violence is way more, not even close, uh, uh, way more of a threat than uh, terrorism. Not that some folks who, you know, watch Fox News would know. They're scared to death that ISIS is going to come into their living room anymore. I've got family members uh, who live in the Midwest uh, who told me last time I was home, that they're way more uh, frightened of, of terrorists than guns. They have guns. They have guns to protect themselves against terrorists or something. I don't know what they're thinking, uh, but, uh, well, they're far more likely uh, to be hurt, killed by guns than by Al-Qaeda or ISIS. Uh, according to this new poll from McClatchy, uh, over 63% of registered voters say they are more worried that they or someone they know will be a victim of gun violence. 63%. While 29% uh, more fear that a friend or, or, uh, friend or them will uh, fall prey to a terrorist attack. Democrats and independents lean heavily towards gun violence as the bigger threat. Democrats fear guns over terrorism, 77 to 15 percent. It ain't even close. It's actually in line with reality. That's nice. Way to go, Democrats. Also, independents fear guns over terrorism, 64 to 28 percent. Republicans, on the other hand, uh, while they actually uh, st still see uh, terrorism, well, I'm sorry, they actually still see guns as a bigger threat, but just barely. 50 to 45 percent, 50 percent fear guns, 45 fear terrorism. So, uh, you know, the, here are some actual numbers from the CDC and the State Department. Between 2001 and 2013, more than 400,000 people died from firearms in the U.S. on U.S. soil, almost Half a million Americans were killed by firearms compared to, oh, 350 U.S. citizens killed overseas at the hands of terrorists during that same period. 
and uh, uh, just over 3,000 killed in domestic acts of terrorism on uh, U.S. soil. Now, that, of course, includes the 9-11. Since 2001. So that includes the 9-11 attacks. Okay. If you take those out of the picture, it's, you know, a couple of hundred uh, on U.S. soil. So it's not even close. When it comes to guns versus terrorism, the greatest threat by far, by far, is guns. Compare that, of course, to the amount of money we spend to uh, protect our country against guns versus the amount of money we we throw down the terrorist uh, terrorism hole uh, in our country. But the fact that uh, Republicans are just so uh, out of uh, out of sync with the rest of the country and frankly, with reality, Tea Party supporters uh, are even more skewed towards uh, terrorism as the greater threat. They believe that terrorism uh, is uh, a greater threat, 57 to 37. And uh, and actually, I, I had the earlier numbers wrong on the Republicans. Okay, the Republicans, uh, they, they fear terrorism more than guns. I thought it was uh, they were smart enough to fear guns more. Than, but no, Republicans, uh, they think a 50 to 45 they fear terrorism over gun violence. So a majority of Republicans, and then when it goes to Tea Partiers, a bigger majority, 57 to 37, fear terrorism rather than the real threat, which is guns. So they are out of touch with reality, but that is hardly a newsflash uh, on, uh, for listeners to the broadcast. Um, in another poll uh, news, another polling news here, which is uh, also not about the presidential race, but does maybe good news for you. You might like this. Pope Francis's campaign for the climate has won hearts and minds in the U.S., according to QZ.com, in just a matter of months. This is from a, a survey uh, from Yale University. The number of people who are worried about global warming has increased by 8% among Americans and 11% among Catholics, according to a November report by the Yale Program on Climate Change, uh, on Climate Change Communication and the George Mason University Center for Climate Change Communications. Meanwhile, the percentage of Americans who say global warming is happening grew from 62% in March, so it was already a majority. That grew from uh, 62% to 66% in October this year, and an even bigger increase in the number of American Catholics who recognize global warming. That bumped up from 64% to 74%. Well, good to know. I'm glad that the Pope's visit uh, actually had an impact on people. Uh, apparently it did, at least according to these uh, these polls. Uh, he spoke at the U.N. General Assembly, uh, that Pope Francis did, in September, and researchers credit him. They call it the Francis Effect. The survey says our, our findings suggest that po- the Pope's teaching about global warming contributed to an increase in public engagement on the issue and influenced the conversation about global warming in America. They call it the Francis effect. Okay. There were also significant increases in the percentage of Americans who see climate change as a moral issue, which is what uh, the Pope had been describing it as. And as what it actually is, Well, which is nice. There you go. Yeah. For people like you. Yeah, for people like me. Who have morals. And people who See? have morals and values yeah. and care about what happens yeah, to folks who me. are not me. Yeah, I don't care. I got no morals. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, and uh, so it was, uh, let's see, a 20 percentage point, 20 percentage point increase in the number of American Catholic Catholics who think global warming will harm the world's poor. And uh, meanwhile, there was a, a, a decrease, 6% among Americans and 10% among American Catholics who deny that climate change is caused by human activity. So thank you, Papa. Good job, Pope Francis. Uh, all right. Uh, speaking uh, of all of the above, this has really been interesting me for months now. I think it was uh, midsummer, early summer. Uh, Des, is that when this started coming on the radar? I think. Yes, uh, we first heard back in. Uh, I think it was July. J- July of this year, uh, when we heard that there were uh, emails, documents, internal documents from Exxon. I was going to say ExxonMobil, but at this time it was just Exxon back in the early 80s that, oh, they had studied climate change. They were concerned about global warming. And then instead of doing something about it, they started spending money uh, to essentially obscure their own science, obscure the science of their own scientists uh, when it came to the potentially catastrophic effects of climate change. That was uh, midsummer or so, and I was remember thinking at the time, man, this sounds just like what Big Tobacco was accused of doing. Or it sounded similar enough that I wondered, you know, would there be a way forward under uh, a, a RICO case, the way that uh, the tobacco company was eventually taken on? Uh, then out comes uh, Inside Climate Change. Uh, what are they called? InsideClimateNews.org. InsideClimateNews.org. <laughs> With their really blockbuster series of reports, finding you know not just uh, one document, but loads of documents that, in fact, Exxon knew about climate change as early as 1977. Spent a lot of money to study it, to figure out what to do about it before sort of changing course in the late 80s and early 90s, and putting millions of dollars into the uh, climate change denial industry. Since then, we've had uh, Neela uh, Banerjee, the lead author of that Inside Climate News report. Uh, Los Angeles Times has come out with their own report. Congressman Ted Lieu, uh, a Democrat from uh, uh, from California, has written a letter to Attorney General Loretta Lynch asking for an investigation and a potential prosecution by the Department of Justice of the uh, fossil fuel industry in this regard. Uh, all three of the Democratic candidates have come out calling for an investigation, a potential prosecution uh of course bernie sanders in the senate sheldon whitehouse we are seeing a lot more we're seeing scientists climate scientists who are now calling for this as well uh so it seems to be gathering uh no small bit of uh, of, of of heat of energy if you will pardon the pun uh, towards a potential investigation and maybe a prosecution akin to what we saw in the big tobacco case Uh, But what was that big tobacco case exactly? How was that prosecuted and how do we have parallels here? Well, uh, joining us now on the broadcast is Sharon Eubanks. She began her career in antitrust litigation at the Federal Trade Commission and later served as deputy director of the commercial litigation branch at the U.S. Department of Justice in 2000. Eubanks served as lead counsel on behalf of the United States in United States versus Philip Morris USA et al. The federal tobacco litigation, the largest civil racketeer-influenced and uh, corruption organizations, that's RICO enforcement action, ever filed. 
She also, uh, Eubanks also co-authored the book Bad Axe, the racketeering case against the tobacco industry. Uh, she now works in private practice at the firm Bordas and Bordas and joins us today from Washington, D.C. Sharon Eubanks, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you, Brad. Glad to be here. Uh, really glad to have you here. Hoping you can help us out. I know in the, uh, in, the in the tobacco case, the court found, and, and let me just read a part of the, the, the ruling here, over the course of more than 50 years, defendants, these would be uh, uh, big tobacco in this case, defendants lied, misrepresented, and deceived the American public, including smokers and young people they avidly sought as replacement smokers about the devastating health effects of smoking and environmental tobacco smoke. They suppressed research, destroyed documents, manipulated the use of nicotine so as to increase and perpetuate addiction, distorted the truth about low tar and light cigarettes so as to discourage smokers from quitting, abused the legal system in order to achieve their goal, to make money with little, if any regard, for individual suffering, soaring health costs, or the integrity of the legal system. That's what the court found in that case. And I want to talk about the parallels here. But before we do, pardon me, Sharon, that I am a legal layman, uh, and I, but I know a lot of us are. What exactly is a RICO case? What are we looking for, and how is that different uh, from a regular old you know, prosecution of any crime, like the corporate negle negligence or some such? Okay, I'll see if I can help you with that. Thank you. RICO is uh, one statute, but you can go for civil remedies or you can go for criminal remedies. A lot of people don't realize that at the time the United States filed its lawsuit against the cigarette companies mm -hmm. and a couple of other organizations who were affiliated with them, uh, that was the same day that we filed um, the criminal investigation closed. But it's the same provisions under a civil RICO case that a party would need to prove, that party being the United States, mm -hmm. uh, versus what you would have to prove in um, a criminal case. RICO was originally passed in, I think it was 1970, and the intent was to pursue organized crime, or at the time they focused on the mafia. Mm -hmm. So the idea behind RICO was to tie together all of the crimes in one case that then would allow the prosecution to be able to connect the different incidents, incidents uh, and violations, allowing the government then to reach the bosses, those behind the crimes. In recent times, RICO has been used um, uh, more in civil cases. Lots of states have their own RICO claims, and individuals, not the federal government, have a right to bring RICO claims, too. However, the remedies that an individual can get and some of the things that they would have to prove are slightly different. It's a big statute, it's a big, it's a big stick, and it's, a, it's a, a statute that has been around for quite some time. And it involves, must it involve conspiracy? In other words, this can't be against a single person or a single corporation. Do we need a number of organizations involved with it? You know, so in other words, if it's just Exxon here that was a bad actor, is that enough to trigger a conspiracy case against them? Not exactly under RICO. I mean, there mm -hmm. might say conspiracy obviously means that you have to be working with another entity. The way RICO is broken down is, let's look at the first thing you look at is, say, conduct, the first mm -hmm. element of RICO. Um, that's pretty straightforward, and basically it's an allegation in your complaint that the defendants, whoever it is that you're suing, mm -hmm. participated 
in the enterprise to carry out the directions of the enterprise. Now, that invites another word into our discussion, enterprise. And enterprise is any individual. It can be individuals. It can be a partnership, Mm -hmm. corporations, officers of a group, of, of a particular corporation, individuals, loosely associated. It doesn't even have to be a legal entity. But the enterprise is a group of individuals who are assisting in carrying out the various uh, racketeering acts that create a pattern of racketeering activity. Um, And basically what you're looking for is something that's distinct from the uh, defendant as meaning a group of individuals who are helping this defendant or engaging with the defendant in the commission of racketeering activity. Mm -hmm. Racketeering activity can be something as simple as, believe it or not, conspiracy or conspiracy to violate the RICO statute, which is really pretty easy to demonstrate. Mm. The, the, The thing about RICO is that it is a very broad statute. It does, once you're able to establish that there are a group of entities working together to accomplish this goal here, maybe to conceal the information about uh, actual climate change that Exxon had, mm-hmm. who it worked with. Maybe it worked with front groups. Maybe it worked with other oil companies. Maybe it worked with, um, you know, an association. Mm-hmm. All of those loosely, even if they're loosely organized, but working on the common goal, could be part of a RICO enterprise, which is an element, a technical element of a RICO case. And I want to get to some of the uh, specifics of, of what we know, or at least what might be some of the parallels here. Uh, but but to get to this, uh, you know, I know that for years people had been uh, comparing the way the uh, uh, fossil fuel industry was defending themselves and attacking their critics. Uh, they've been, you know, big comparisons to big tobacco and the way they defended themselves, the way they uh, attacked their critics. And in fact, many of the same uh, people and organizations are involved in sort of defending big oil that were previously defending big tobacco. How yeah, did? <laughs> I'm sorry. What's that? I said, yeah, funny how that works. It's it's a complete coincidence, Sharon, and I'm furious that you would suggest otherwise. The <laughs> um, how did the tobacco litigation actually come about? What triggered it? What was the moment when the Department of Justice says, yeah, uh, we need to investigate uh, what went on here and bring a case? Because I'm trying to figure out how that could come about now in this case with uh, with Exxon and and the fossil fuel industry. Well, it's, it may surprise you to know that the United States of America was a little late to the party of suing the uh, right. tobacco industry for this conduct. The states had um, engaged in lawsuits, particularly the state of Minnesota, uh, where a large cache of documents came to light, internal documents from the companies that really nailed down the misconduct. This is really one big, or the tobacco litigation was one big fraud case. Mm-hmm. That they're, you know, that the companies knew the harms of smoking, and yet they concealed it for the public for the purpose of increasing their profits. That they uh, were marketing and targeting youth with their products and lying all along about whether they were targeting youth. Everything that they were doing, they were lying about doing it. And oddly enough, you know, this this being a fraud case, those were the things that we had to prove. We had to, and and the court actually there found that uh, the public denial of things like the harms of secondhand smoke when their own internal documents showed otherwise, 
that they concealed and suppressed research. These were all things that the tobacco companies did. And when the United States filed its suit in 1999 after the president, President Clinton at the time, had announced in January of uh, 1999, January 20th, that he was going to ask the attorney general to look into the possibility of filing a lawsuit Mm -hmm. against the industry to shore up Medicare. Now, oddly enough, Brad, that lawsuit was not necessarily a RICO lawsuit. It would, it, there could have been other statutes that the United States could bring forward in an enforcement action. And what they did that's really interesting is RICO was one of three statutes. But when the judge heard the evidence, the motion to dismiss the case in its entirety, she held on to the RICO claims and found that the other statutes didn't give rise to a right of action by the government against the industry. And so what we ended up prosecuting was just one big RICO case. So you say uh, Bill Clinton came aboard, or uh, came to uh, power, I suppose, and actually called for the, for the Justice Department to do this. And, and you said it, it was, uh, I guess the, the damages were against Medicare because the costs to the government were so high thanks to Thanks to the dangers of smoking, is that essentially what where this started? And they said, hey, this is damaging the United States of America because it's costing us a lot of money? Well, actually, yeah, it was. It was a damages case in addition to under RICO, which is um, mm-hmm. equitable remedies, meaning no one's going to go to jail and you cannot punish. However, with respect to the damages case and what the government was focusing on, uh, it looked at um, the cost of treating six smokers who continued to smoke because of these actions of these companies over time. And they filed, we filed a suit under two other statutes, which, as I said, didn't survive scrutiny when the judge looked at it uh, after the, the defendants, after the industry moved to dismiss the case. But what she did find was that the government had met all of the requirements for a racketeering case, which, of course, they laughed at the time. The industry... Um, you know, sent out its talking heads to say how ridiculous it was when we first filed the suit, uh-huh. that we would uh, file it under RICO. And they continued to take that position uh, once we did file a RICO suit, which, you know, it was affirmed by the Court of Appeals and for the, Feder- uh, for the D.C. Circuit. And uh, the, the request for certiorari to the Supreme Court was denied. So it's on the books. It's, uh, it's an effective way to deal with um, this type of fraudulent conduct. And before we filed, we filed a lawsuit in September of 1999. So we had time to review the documentation and the information that we had from the, feder- the, the state suits that had been filed and that collection of documents before we came up with the factual allegations in our complaint. We're not quite there right now with what we have from the industry. We have some documents from Exxon, but enough to know, uh, it seems to me, based on what some of those documents say, that, to me, it seems an investigation is warranted. And you had mentioned that in the tobacco case, it was uh, some of the state courts and some of the private actions that got the uh, federal ball moving, so to speak. Late last week, uh, as I understand, uh, New York State... um, uh, uh, prosecutor Eric Schneiderman in uh, in New York had uh, has now, uh, as I understand, subpoenaed Exxon uh, for documents, you know, concerning, I guess, a, a fraud investigation. He represents Wall Street, after all. Uh, and, you know, did they 
uh, defraud investors by not letting them know, you know, the real costs of this product. Is, is that one of the uh, well, is that one of the parallels that you see that actions like that by a state prosecutor could uh, trigger federal action as well, Sharon Eubanks? I don't think necessarily that a state action would trigger a federal action. However, what comes to light and is publicly available from that investigation certainly could push forward, uh, you know, a solid basis for proceeding. The, the federal government actually has an ability, that's the Martin Act, and, and I'm not an expert on the Martin Act, and I'm not a New York practitioner, so I can't really tell you much about how the state of New York operates, except uh -huh. to tell you that it's a pretty powerful position to be in, to go in and to subpoena documents. Similarly, the United States has the authority under RICO for something called civil investigative demands, CIDs. And a CID is very similar to a subpoena, and it's a pre-litigation discovery tool that the government can use to compel document production before commencing a formal civil or criminal investigation. And it doesn't allow you to get any testimony, Brad, but it does allow you to get a whole bunch of documents from individuals who, let's say, would be part of this enterprise that I've described, as well as um, some of the individuals, maybe um, officers in the corporation, uh, different corporations, Exxon, you could send out these civil investigative demands and they would have an opportunity to respond to that. And documents could be gathered that way before, say, any other investigation that the um, Justice Department would be uh, willing to do or, or would want to do. They could certainly gather more information and the government has that power. I'm speaking with Sharon Eubanks, the lead prosecutor in the Federal government's case against Philip Morris, against Big Tobacco. we got to take a quick break here, Sharon. Uh, stay put. going to come back after the break, and, uh, and I will ask Sharon Eubanks if she believes, based on the information that she has seen so far, if the government, the federal government, actually has a case against uh, ExxonMobil as compared to uh, what she saw when when she took big tobacco to court back a decade ago. Stay tuned for that. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. We will be right back. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. The heat is on Exxon Mobil. Where did they know? When did they know it? Uh, and did they obscure their own science to mislead the public? Will there be a federal RICO investigation conspiracy case brought against Big Tobacco? Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com with you here on the Bradcast. I'm speaking with Sharon Eubanks. She was the lead counsel on behalf of the United States of America in U.S. v. Philip Morris, USA, the largest uh, RICO enforcement action ever filed. 
Okay, uh, Sharon, well, let's get uh, right to it then. What parallels do you see? And I know you're not a, a climate scientist uh, or even an environmental lawyer necessarily, but uh, looking at what we know so far, the information that has come out, the investigation from uh, uh, Inside Climate News, uh, showing that, in fact, the company was well aware, Exxon was well aware in the late 70s and the early 80s about the dangers of their of using their product uh, you know, in, in the way that it was supposed to be used were you know aware of those dangers uh, and then began to try to obscure that science what are the parallels directly that you see in that case to what big tobacco was doing in the case that you brought well i think it goes a little bit farther than what you've said and and it's very close to what happened where the companies knew uh, the tobacco case litigation spanned 50 years of fraud. Mm-hmm. Um, when the, the uh, lung cancer scare came out in the 50s, the, uh, the, the public relations people that were hired by the companies all came together and said, listen, we have to handle this. We have to do something about it. And so what they decided to do was basically to um, uh, create doubt and you know, to make sure that everyone was in a position who wanted to smoke to say, well, you can't prove that it did this, or mm-hmm. you can't prove that it's harmful, you can't prove that it causes cancer. Mm-hmm. And that was the position that they continued to take. But they falsely denied that it was harmful because their own internal documents and research showed that harm. Similar to the, what we know right now with the new documents, relatively new documents that have come out, um, Exxon had a very robust um, uh, investigation looking at climate change issues and realizing and having scientists who were writing true science about what was happening, demonstrating that the planet was warming. And then at some point in time, they decided that they were going to put a lock on that, conceal it from the public. And it seems to me, and this is what an investigation would certainly uh, reveal, Mm -hmm. that they were financing uh, these activities by giving um, money and instructions, not just money, but instructions as well, to various groups who would be the deniers of climate change when, in fact, Exxon knew that climate change was real, and they knew as well that we had a limited amount of time on our hands to figure out exactly how to address this. What was their motive? Well, um, maybe it was to avoid regulation. We find that out in an investigation. Um, Was their motive to increase their profits? It usually is. You know, they want to have their product, as you said, used. Mm -hmm. So... All of these things are, at least so far, are very similar, if not identical, to um, what the court was looking at in the, the tobacco litigation. In her findings, you know, in Judge Kessler in the tobacco case uh, noted that the industry mounted a coordinated, well-financed, sophisticated public relations campaign to attack and distort the scientific evidence demonstrating the relationship between smoking and disease claiming that the link between the two was still an open question. Now, if you compare that to what it is that we know about the Exxon documents Mm -hmm. so far and just substitute, uh, instead of adverse health effects, adverse climate effects, and substitute for smoking carbon pollution, it seems to me that the activities surrounding that, mounting the well-coordinated, well-financed public relations campaign to distort the scientific evidence, and to promote that there was an open question um, is the same thing that we see that the industry is doing. 
one of the things I've been trying to figure out as I've been pondering this case over the past few months, uh, wh- is it illegal to uh, to either lie or to obscure the science? In other words, uh, are they re- are they are these companies required to disclose their science, to disclose their findings? I mean, can, isn't this proprietary material? They don't have to share it with the public, do they? When, yeah, we're, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that. I mean, that sort of raises an interesting question. And, and is there a constitutional right to lie? Um, the companies certainly were responsible for contradicting the, uh, their own evidence that they had about uh, climate change, and whether that's something that they can do as a, a right is something that is yet to be demonstrated. Certainly the industry and the tobacco industry was not allowed to go forward with, with that type of misconduct. But if you're asking the question of what right does a company have to keep its own um, research, certainly it has a proprietary interest in, in certain things. There's something called the Trade Secrets Act mm-hmm. that might protect um, you know, research and so forth. Right. They pay a lot of money to do these things, and they don't necessarily have to share them with their competitors. That's not how these things work. But when you take the extraordinary step of lying to the public, including um, in this sense uh, um, the government, because you don't want to be regulated or you don't want some change to come about to affect your bottom line, that raises a different question. And that is essentially um, the fraud case that was brought on behalf of the United States. I get your point that, you know, is this something that, you know, you can do? Does a party, does a person have a constitutional right to lie? Well, I'd submit to you that if the FBI came in to investigate your organization about something that it was doing, and in that, the context of that investigation, you lied to the FBI, uh-huh. it doesn't even raise a question whether you could be prosecuted for that. Everyone knows you can. How is this different? Does RICO give rise to a right to prosecute for um, uh, fraudulent uh, materials being disseminated to the public? I say yes. Does that mean that um, there aren't some issues regarding the ability to keep internal company material internal? Of course you can. I think that the two can coexist. Well, they're they're going to say, I mean, they are really are already saying that, well, we didn't lie about it. Uh, you know, we didn't go out of our way to let people know that there was... Uh, you know, this this potentially catastrophic defect of, of climate change coming down the road. Uh, and we gave money to uh, organizations, scientists uh, to investigate uh, concerns that that's not illegal. That's free speech. We didn't tell them to go out and lie to the public and say there is no climate change. We just said, hey, go out and, and, and find out what you can learn. So they're making this as from what I've heard so far, a free speech argument. Um does that hold any uh, water, share? I don't think factually what they're saying is supportable by the internal documents. One of the things that an investigation would reveal is what instructions they gave those to whom they financed, those that they gave the money to go out and perform research, and what was their control over those individuals. Let's say you write a scientific article. Mm-hmm. Don't you have to disclose uh, your affiliations? That's because it goes to bias. That's exactly what the tobacco industry was doing. Part of, I mean, the trial was for nine months. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of evidence that came in. One of the things that uh, the judge spent some time on in that case was just the, the, uh, the fact that that industry went out and basically purchased science 
Um, there were scientists who basically were hired because they would write things a certain way. We don't know to what degree that was something that was going on here, but there is some evidence to, indi to indicate connections between other groups who would go out and get the word out, where then you wouldn't think, oh, that's coming from Exxon. I, I know it's tainted. You wouldn't know where it was coming from. Didn't, did Exxon tell them, this is the direction we want you to go in, create doubt, uh, mm -hmm. go out and manufacture doubt? Mm -hmm. um, I think that, um, you know, there is a good chance that you will see that in some of the documents when you look. In fact, I have seen some of the documents where the companies themselves are saying things like, we know better, but, you know, this is, and this is a problem for us. Right. So they're recognizing it, yet at the same time, they're financing groups to say the opposite of what they know to be true. Oh, wow. Is that a First Amendment right? I guess we'll find out. Uh, well, I hope we find out. Uh, is it, uh, you've got just a minute or two left here, uh, Sharon. Is it fair to say, uh, one of the other things that I've, I've been trying to figure out about uh, a possible case here, um, are, are the parallels, well, I mean, I guess if they're out there simply lying about the science, that's one thing, if you can show fraud. But in this, but, but when we get down to what the, uh, what the concerns are, what the dangers are. When it comes to cigarette smoking, it seems like a case can be made that the uh, big tobacco lied to people who used their product, misrepresented what they knew about that product, and that product ended up killing those people or some of those people. With climate change, it seems a little bit more uh, more detached, not quite as direct. In other words, if I use their product, I'm you know I have a, a, a car, a Prius, thank you, but it, it burns fossil fuel, uh, and I'm therefore contributing to the you know destruction of the environment potentially down the road, maybe even generations later, it may end up killing people. But you know, in other words, you don't have the same the people using the product who are the same victims of whatever it is that the company is doing. So do, does does that make the argument different, big tobacco from big oil, or am I or am I overthinking this? Which uh, I no, no, do. I don't think you're overthinking it, but I, I think that that gets to the remedies at the end of the day, assuming mm -hmm. that a violation of RICO is found. Okay. Let's look at what the remedies are, are, are some of the concerns that we have. Extreme weather comes at a cost. Climate and weather disasters in 2012 alone cost the American economy more than $100 billion. That, that, that figure is on the uh, Office of Science Technology Policy website, um, you know, from, from the White House. Factually, that's, that's the case, that the American economy has cost this money. We are American citizens suing on behalf of the United States. That could be um, one of the things that you would want to address. Um, there also are public health threats that are associated with extreme weather. That's not very hard to prove. It's just a fact. Gets too hot, elderly and young people are, you know, on those days are advised, or, you know, their advisories not to go outside. Mm -hmm. And the EPA right now is studying the environmental and health impacts of climate change. It's a different, the, the American people are harmed by this. Sure, the, the whole planet is harmed by it, but the American people, there's demonstrable harm here to um, citizens and to the public fisc when you look at what, it, you know, these extreme weather costs uh, are to when it comes to dealing with that. Gotcha. 
and and I see that that you're making a more direct case. I guess that science has to uh, you know be pretty solid to say yes, this heat was caused by global warming, which is thanks to man-made uh, uh, burning of man-made uh, fossil fuels. Uh, or man-made burning of fossil fuels, uh, and and therefore we are paying a price, and therefore you guys are liable. Y- you told, uh, and, and I could, boy, you're so helpful on this, Sharon. There's stuff that I could talk to you all day. Uh, I hope you'll come back in the future as this thing moves forward because you're, you're really shedding a lot of light on this. But last question here, last thought. You told uh, Think Progress in a recent interview that in order for such a, a prosecution to move forward, that uh, you would you would really need uh, either a bipartisan agreement of some sort that this should move forward, which seems hard to uh, even imagine right now, given how you know enthralled the Republican Party seems to be to the fossil fuel industry, or a Democratic-controlled Congress and White House at the same time. Now, why would that be? Isn't this a decision just of... Uh, at least for a federal case, the Department of Justice. Why would a, uh, a, a Democratic-controlled Congress be necessary or Republicans in Congress who agree with such a prosecution? Well, first, you'd have to find some Republicans in Congress who would agree. Why? Um, that, <laughs> that certainly would make things go a lot more smoothly. And you're absolutely right. Um, the current Justice Department could undertake these actions right now. Right. That's what happened under Clinton and then um, we had a Republican president who followed that. There were a number of serious issues that came into play because of the lack of support from the Republicans, even though the case was in play. So it certainly would be, I think it, it would be great if people would look at these issues objectively and then ask the department to objectively investigate and come forward. Always better if you have bipartisan support. There's nobody to hide behind. Uh, it's it's a great idea, but your que- if your question is, could they go ahead with? Could right now um, the 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 AG be asked to investigate without any support from anybody else? Yes, and I think if that's what it takes, it should be done. Well, yeah, because I don't think any Republicans are going to get on board with this. It seems like it needs to move forward. So there's no legal trigger that requires some uh, Congress to uh, approve of, of a prosecution of this sort. If the DOJ wanted to, if they found cause, they could move forward on this case by themselves. That's true. No matter what, I can right? tell you that the basis for my comment was based on personal experiences mm-hmm. and personal knowledge, working on the tobacco case, making it even more difficult because of a lack of support, gotcha. political support from a Republican administration. Gotcha. And that if, if we're going to do something about climate change, we, we don't have a lot of time. We need to get on it. Right. And um, it would certainly be better to have them on board, but it's not required in any fashion uh, that you know of. That, uh, is, that is absolutely correct. Right. And, and by way of, of uh, to be fair, you, you, know, you point out that once the Bush administration took over after the, the Clintons came in, uh, the 130 billion that you were seeking uh, from big tobacco ended up being uh, uh, brought down to only 10 billion. Still a huge uh, uh, judgment, but nothing like the 130 billion that you were hoping for when you had a Democrat uh, having your back, I suppose, in the White House. Well, it wasn't just having your back. We had put on all of our evidence, and it was mm-hmm. clear that we deserved to win. And it was up to the government to say to the judge what we wanted as the takeaway. When our remedy was slashed without reason, uh, when we were in such a strong position, that raises all kinds of issues. There was a subsequent investigation of that issue as well. 
<laughs> of course there was. We'll, uh, we'll have to hold that one for the next time, uh, Sharon. Uh, Sharon Eubanks, uh, thank you so much. Uh, author of Co-author of the book Bad Acts, the Racketeering Case Against the Tobacco Industry, uh, recounting her work as lead counsel on behalf of the United States in United States v. Philip Morris USA, the largest uh, RICO enforcement action ever filed, and I'm happy to say successfully won, even if it wasn't $130 billion. Uh, we're, we're grateful for what you did. Uh, Sharon, grateful for that and grateful for you joining us today. Hope you'll come back in the future. Thank you, and have a great week. Thank you very much. Sharon Eubanks, incredibly enlightening. Uh, this is now starting finally to make sense in my head, how this would... Uh, potentially move forward and uh well i didn't get the chance to ask her there but she did say we at some point did you notice that desi doyne she said we uh we are looking at this as if maybe she's actually working on uh on well this i case. hope that I don't she, know she is, is in her private practice yeah. because she's really really good and she explains it very well and i'd be interested now in, in hearing about what kind of pushback can be expected how exxon uh and the oil companies if this investigation should come forward how they would push back against that. I, I think, imagine they would. Yeah. Oh, yeah, just a little. I think it's coming forward, and, uh, you know, the tobacco case took a long time. She mentioned 1999, I think, they originally started the investigation. It was 2006, I think, before they got their uh, their final judgment. There's appeals. There's everything else. But um, So this could take a while, but, boy, it sure does seem to me like things are coming together and that Exxon as I said last week, is in big, big trouble. We'll see if that's wishful thinking, but all signs seem to be pointed in that direction at this point. And uh, you know what? Not a moment too soon. All right, a quick break, and we're back with more Bradcast right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. I will. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. It has been a big week. A Republican debate uh, a couple of days ago. A uh, forum, a Democratic forum, not actually a debate. Late last week in South Carolina with the, uh, with the Democrats. Uh, and another uh, Democratic debate coming up over the weekend. But uh, that also means uh, with a, a Democratic forum and a Republican debate, there has been a lot of discussion, I'm happy to say, concerning energy, climate change, global warming. So we've got a very green show, very green broadcast apparently today. <laughs> yes, we do. We may as well end it with our special uh, coverage of those debates and those forums with our latest Green News Report. Green News Report special coverage, the 2016 presidential debates. We're not fully utilizing our energy resources that if we did, it would bring back all kinds of growth, especially in manufacturing. Republicans. Climate change is real and it's a very big security threat, but it's also a huge opportunity for us. And Democrats talk climate, energy, and the path forward. We've had times when the carbon in the atmosphere has been higher. Or not. All of those knots and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. We've had a great American success story. 
the explosion of natural gas. Uh, Jeb, I'm not a campaign consultant, but you might want to rephrase that. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, slowly but surely, it's taken uh, presidential election cycle after presidential election cycle, but climate change and global warming is slowly but surely working its way into the presidential debates. Yeah, it's really nice to see that, I have to admit. Although it's always, you know, the last question of the night, but, you know, I guess we got to take what we can get. It's only the greatest existential threat facing the planet, so why hurry? Yep, that's right. In the fourth Republican 2016 presidential debate on Tuesday in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, there was little talk about climate change or energy from either the debate host Fox Business Channel or from the eight Republican candidates in the main debate, despite the fact that, as you mentioned, both climate change and energy are kind of crucial issues. Instead, the Republicans doubled down on fossil fuels and attacked regulations. Former Florida Governor Jeb Bush wants to repeal the rules. Every rule that Barack Obama has in terms of work in progress, every one of them, the Clean Power Act, we ought to repeal that and and start over on that. The Waters of the United States Act, which is going to be devastating for agriculture and many industries, we should repeal the rules because the economic costs of this far exceed the social benefit. Now, those are not acts. They're pollution standards that are required under existing law, but he wants to repeal all of them anyway. And those rules are made in response to laws. Exactly. The Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act. Kentucky Senator Rand Paul was put on the spot with the only question on climate change because he recently voted for a Senate amendment saying climate change is man-made. So he backtracked. Well, I do think man may have a role in our our climate. I think nature also has a role. The planet's 4.5 billion years old. We've had times when the temperature's been warmer. We've had times when the temperature's been colder. We've had times when the carbon in the atmosphere has been higher. And that is correct. Carbon dioxide levels have been higher in Earth's geological history. But the bad news is there were no humans then, and it sometimes caused global extinction. So, Yes, carbon levels have been higher, but man was not walking Earth at the time. Exactly. And now he's saying that, well, maybe that's what's going on now. The Earth is just changing in a couple of dozen years rather than the thousands of years that it usually takes for this to happen. Right. Got it. Paul also pledged to repeal clean air regulations that he blames for the decline of the coal industry. It would be a mistake to shut down all of our industries in the coal fields and shut down the coal, the coal-powered plants. If we did so... We're going to have a day where we wake up and some of our big cities are either very cold or very hot. We want all of the above. We want to free up the energy sector and let people produce, let them drill, let them explore. Got bad news for you, Senator. If we don't take action, yeah, people are definitely going to wake up and it's going to be either very hot or very cold. And also, setting aside the fear-mongering about energy shortages, which is completely baseless, Senator Paul's all-of-the-above policy is already President Obama's approach, and the U.S. energy sector is already booming. It is fracking for cheap natural gas and the rise of renewables that are killing coal. There was no mention of the United Nations climate negotiations in Paris in a few weeks that will result in an international agreement that the next president will have to oversee. 
The Republican candidates' policies are a big contrast to the Democratic presidential candidates' policies. Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, and former Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley all have detailed policies to transition the nation's infrastructure to clean energy and to lead on global climate efforts. O'Malley's policies are the most ambitious, a goal of a 100% clean electricity grid by 2050. At the recent Democratic Forum in South Carolina, hosted by MSNBC, O'Malley said climate change is both a threat and an opportunity. It's a huge opportunity for America's cities, the very places where uh, uh, poverty is most entrenched and where we can make the investments in a clean energy jobs core, where we can seed a whole new generation of, of clean buildings and affordable and workforce housing. And the distributed grid that we're moving to is very well suited for cities. Well, I suppose I should be happy that at least the conversation is beginning It would still be nice if there was a little more action and a whole lot less denial coming from one side of the aisle. It's just the planet in the balance. Why worry? For more on the stories we covered today and the ones we couldn't get to, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find us and follow us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your... Green News Report. A little less conversation, a little more action. All this aggravation ain't satisfaction in me. A little more bite, a little less spark. A little less fight, a little more ain't spark. satisfaction in me. Yeah, now we're out of time. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, thank you, Desi Doyen, our producer, Desi Doyen. My thanks to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn. And, of course, to my guest today, former uh, DOJ prosecutor Sharon Eubanks for bringing the knowledge, information, and uh, uh, shedding a lot of light on a really important topic. I think Exxon is in deep, deep. We'll see you soon on the (laughs) Bradcast. Uh, Same Brad time, same Brad channel. Uh, Until then, if you missed any portion of our program, you can download it at bradblog.com. You can go on over to iTunes, download it there. You can subscribe for free. Get them all for free. Give us a good review while you're there. Drop us email if you like. My email address is bradcast at bradblog.com. And you can find me on the Twitters and the Facebooks at simply TheBradBlog. All right, that's it. We'll see you soon. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.